0: You're listening to a podcast from 7.02. 7.02. The Naked Scientist. And it is 20 minutes to 3 o'clock. We have The Naked Scientist with us. How are you doing, Dr. Chris Smith?
1: I'm going to be your goodie bag today. <laughs> How about that? Pro- it's a prize beyond price. That one. You
0: you are a good goodie bag to have because I could literally there take you go. anywhere and make you answer a whole lot of questions that could make my life much easier. But I want to start off with a question. And, of course, all of you can send through your questions or give us a call, 11 883 on the WhatsApp line, 72 The question that I have for you, Doctor, is... About the internal um, parts or organs and things that have become insignificant as evolution is happening. So I'm looking at the append- appendix, for example, are we going to become creatures that just are born without the appendix and individuals that are born with, you know, fewer wisdom teeth uh, because they seem to not be needed as much as they
1: were? Well, we are the product of evolution and what evolution means is that there's variation in a population and selective pressure brought to bear by the environment in which we find ourselves either selects for certain characteristics or selects against characteristics or in some cases they make almost no difference and therefore they may slowly change or peter out or fizzle out. So if something is strongly advantageous then it makes sense if people have it that it will stick around in the population. If things are strongly disadvantageous it makes sense they actively disappear from a population and that's generally what happens. But it's not always the case because there are some instances where something which is deleterious in one instance may actually have a secret advantage. And a really good example in the African context of this is sickle cell anemia because in countries where there is no malaria... Obviously, it's a disadvantage to carry a condition that might cause you a blood problem. But if you live in heavily malarious areas, it turns out that sickle cell anemia is a massive advantage because the malaria parasite does not grow well and will not grow in sickled hemoglobin. So you tend to find a stronger representation of that particular gene in populations that are afflicted by malaria than you would in non-malarious areas. So it's not a given that everything is useless because nature has a way of finding uses for things when you're in different contexts. So really we are the product of, of selective pressure from our environments and as environments change, then things come and go in terms of their importance to us.
0: So specifically when it comes to your wisdom teeth or appendix, we might not necessarily in 100 years be without them because they might have another use.
1: Well, the appendix is a lymphoid organ. It's part of your immune system. We don't actually know exactly what it does, but it certainly makes a contribution to how your immune system works and perhaps how your immune system recognises friend and foe in your intestines. So the fact that it's still there after millions of years of evolution of mammals argues that it probably does have an important role to play under certain circumstances. So one wouldn't necessarily expect it to disappear overnight. We, we still do a lot of the things that people did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. So I don't think it will necessarily disappear wisdom teeth well we don't actually know why we have those or whether they're just some kind of evolutionary throwback Whether they serve some other useful purpose, chances are they probably don't. And so people who are born without them are not a material disadvantage. So perhaps they will slowly shuffle off this mortal coil and disappear. But it's going to take a long time. We evolve really very slowly because we are a long-lived species that takes a long time to reach reproductive age. People Mm. don't start having children until, you know, 20s, 30s. And as a result of that, it takes a long time for those changes to bed into a population. A fast turnover species, like a mouse that's pregnant within six weeks of being born, that has the opportunity to evolve more mm, rapidly mm. than we do. But, but certainly, given long enough, yeah, who knows what we might look like.
0: Yes, yes. All right, uh, we are going to the lines on 11 883 We have Tzolofelo in Brits. Hi, Tolo. Hi, hi, hello, Bukhila. Hi to the doctor. Um, Just a question from me, right? Yesterday, I was making food and my onion. And so, I realized so, no, so, no. It, so, you just cut for a no. second. Can you start from the beginning? Oh, sorry for that. So, I was saying that yesterday as I was making dinner, so I took out an onion from the fridge and it hit me that, you know, that effect of being watery to the eyes had actually stopped and I realized that that's, an, that's actually a thing. So, I'm wondering if Dr. Knows why that actually happens, that if onions have sat in the fridge for a little while, it's, they stop having that, you know, watery thing and, you know, irritating the eye thing that happens, mm. it's like a fridge. yeah.
1: I think there's a few things going on. One is that, that, first of all, the reasons onions make your eyes stream when you cut them when they're fresh is because there are enzymes in the onion that break down various sulfur-containing compounds in the cells of the onion when you cut into the cells. So when you traumatize the onion by cutting into it, you release these enzymes that then act on these sulfur-containing compounds. They then produce another chemical called uh, synpropanethial-S oxide, and it is a, a lacrimatory factor. In other words, it irritates the fine nerve endings on the front of the eye, the cornea, which are linked to your tear glands it makes your eyes think it's got something in it that's irritating and that triggers the tear reflex to flush out the irritant. It is an irritant. It's sitting on the front of your eye and if you cry, it washes it away because that's the product of a chemical reaction. That's why it doesn't happen instantly. You've got to cut the onion and then after a while of cutting the onion, then you notice your eyes streaming because it takes time for the onion tissue to break and break apart, release the enzymes, the enzymes to act on the sulfur compounds, the sulfur compounds to metabolize things into this syn-propanethylase oxide, which is what irritates your eye. And that delay is why you then start crying a bit later. But like all chemical processes, it's going to be temperature dependent. Anything that relies on an enzyme will be limited by the temperature. So if it's really cold the enzyme won't work very fast. If it's been heated up to a high temperature, the enzyme won't work at all, which is why cooked onion doesn't do this. So by putting your onion in the fridge and having cut it before, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that by cutting into the onion, you've already released those chemicals and they've done the chemistry they're going to do. So there's much less of that left behind by the time you come to cut the onion. That's one possibility. I think more likely is that by reducing the temperature of the onion, it's a cut onion from the fridge, you've dropped all of the rates of reaction of these chemicals in the onion because it's cold, because chemical reactions go much more slowly in the cold. Therefore, although those chemical reactions can still happen, they're going to happen much more slowly. Therefore, they're going to produce much less of the irritant substance and therefore you're going to cry less. That's my speculation.
0: Thank you so much for that question, Tulu Fellow. Let's go to Stan in four ways. Hi, Stan.
1: Hi, good afternoon. Hi, the good doctor. Um I've made an observation that uh, you know, monkeys tend to eat a lot of sweet things. You know, when they have like candies or sweets, as we call them, um, ice cream, whatever is sweet, and even sweet foods like watermelons and so on, they tend to eat that kind of stuff. So they are pretty much like, uh, you know, you and I. Now, I've been wondering as to whether they do suffer from diabetes at all. And also, whether they do have, uh, you know, any cancers that you know you normal normal human beings
0: uh, would have, breast cancer, you know, lung cancer, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Stone, for that question, Doctor.
1: Well, most animals have a penchant for sugary things in the same way that we do and the reason is that sugary things usually mean energy rich things and easily accessible energy sugars are really easy to break down into simpler sugars they're really easy to absorb into the body and they're really easy for your metabolism to turn straight into useful activity and that's what the body wants maximum output for least work if you eat complicated big chunky things then it takes ages to extract the energy from them and that can slow down what you're capable of doing so many animals have evolved to like sweet things because a sweet thing is an energy fix straight away which is why you know us right through to mice and rats like chocolate sugar that kind of thing now in terms of the impact of that everything in moderation applies here if you eat a small amount of something then as part of a mixed diet it's all fine But if you binge on one thing entirely, then it's going to have consequences. And sugar, if you take too much of it, is going to cause you to gain weight because sugar is very good at pushing up your blood sugar levels and that will push up your insulin levels, which will cause you to turn it into fat. And the more fat you have on board, the higher your insulin resistance. And as you get fatter, put on more weight, your sensitivity to the signal insulin drops. So if you get too large beyond the realms of what we consider healthy, in other words, you are into a state of what's called insulin insensitivity, and your body becomes deaf to its own insulin. And pretty much all animals that are being studied, whether it's your pet dog, your pet cat, or monkeys, are going to have the same problem. If they become obese and they therefore become insulin resistant, that is a precursor to becoming diabetic. So all animals are capable, as far as we know, if they've got a pancreas that works the same way ours does, If they gain too much weight, they're going to have the same problem. So, yes, they absolutely could do that. In terms of other diseases, different animals will have higher risks of succumbing to other diseases. And this is a product of where they live, what they eat, how long they tend to live for and what sorts of things they're exposed to. So humans, we tend to get a range of diseases which are driven by the environment, what we do with our bodies and where we live and what, what we eat. If you are a mouse, then you tend to get a different set of diseases than diseases that a human would get that take 70 years to get, for obvious reasons. So it really matters what sort of animal it is, what sort of lifespan it's likely to have, and what sort of environment it's encountering. Some animals also have other clever tricks that mean that they don't get diseases that, at the rates you would expect them to. Elephants, for example, despite being absolutely huge and having trillions of cells, many, many more cells than we do, you'd think they would have a really high risk of getting cancer because they've got so many cells, they've got so many chances for their DNA to go wrong, they ought to be a sitter for cancer. doesn't happen. Why does it not happen? Well, researchers, including a guy called Vincent Lynch over in America, have looked at the genetic code of big animals like elephants, and they have found that they have compensated by having extra copies of anti-cancer genes which keep their cells much safer and therefore means that even though they have an enormous body, they don't succumb to cancer at anything like the rate that that huge body would suggest that they should. So really it deter- is determined by what sort of animal you're talking about, what sorts of diseases you're going to get.
0: All right, thank you so much, Stan, for that question. Uh, we've got another call from Mule Baloa from Phosphorus. Uh, hi, Mule Baloa.
1: Hi, Kinewukhile. I have two questions. What creates a rainbow and what creates a lightning? Mm, mm, Thank you so much for that. Doctor? Well, first of all, what's the rainbow? Well, a rainbow is a trick of the light. When you look at the sun, it looks a white colour, but white light doesn't exist. White light is your experience of seeing all of the different colours in a rainbow all mixed together. And when that light comes from the sun as rays of light, and it hits something capable of splitting up all the different wavelengths of light, you can experience them. And what's happening with a rainbow is that the sunshine is hitting raindrops in the air. And when light goes from one medium, the air, into a different medium, water, it changes speed and bends. And different colours of light, different wavelengths, bend by slightly different amounts. So the light is split up inside the raindrop into all these different colours because they bend when the light goes into the raindrop by that different amount. The inside surface of the raindrop, on the opposite side to the side the light went in, is reflective like a mirror. So the light then comes back out of the raindrop to your eye, and because it's been split up into all the different colours, because the light bent by different amounts when it went into the raindrop, it comes out of the raindrop, still bent, and you see all the different colours that came from the sun but when they hit us, we're all mixed together.
0: Oh, something happened to the doctor there, Dr. Chris? Okay, I'm not sure what has happened there. We seem to have lost the good doctor. But send through your questions if uh, you have not had an opportunity to do so. Oh seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. or give us a call 011 AA30702. Doctor, are you back? Hmm, something seems to be going on. I think let us uh, take a bit of a break. Okay, Doctor, let's see. I think we've got him back. Doctor, are you there?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but I, hopefully you're hearing me. <laughs> yes, lightning I am hearing is you. <laughs> a little bit different. With lightning, what's happening with lightning is that inside clouds, there are lots of particles of ice. They're called hydrometeors. Some are big, some are small, and they're being buffeted around on air currents inside the cloud. And it does something very similar to if you take a balloon, rub it on your hair, and you'll find it sticks to the wall. Because when these particles rub against each other very rapidly, you get separation of charges. And you get the bottom of the cloud with big, big particles which are negatively charged. And the top of the cloud, the plus goes up there. So you get a charge separation inside the cloud. And if you separate charges, you get what's called a potential difference. And therefore, there is a voltage both across the clouds, but also between the cloud and the ground. And depending upon which has the lower resistance, either within the cloud or through the air down to the Earth's surface, you eventually get ionization or a breakdown of the uh, insulating properties of the air so that the particles begin to conduct electricity and you equalise the charge difference between the cloud and the Earth by electricity that's accumulated at the bottom of the cloud flowing down to the Earth's surface, down these very fine conduits of ionised air to the ground, and they discharge the energy very, very rapidly between the cloud and the ground, unleashing anything between 1 and a 10 billion joules of, of energy all at once. And the current is so high, it's tens of thousands of amps of current flowing down this conduit, that the air becomes superheated to tens of thousands of degrees. And that makes the air expand so quickly and glow that you get this flash of light. But then, because the air expanded so quickly, you get the rumble of thunder because the shock wave that's created as the air expands comes to you a bit more slowly than the light does. And that's why you see the flash, but then you hear the thunder, which catches up with the light that went faster.
0: Thank you so much for that question. Let's go to Eddie in Germiston. Hi, Eddie.
1: Hello to you and Dr. Chris. Uh, Hi, Eddie. Dolly Dolly the cloned sheep, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, lots of promises. I'm supposed to be, what, 90% chimpanzee, DNA, and 3% of something else. Now, when Dolly was cloned successfully, there was lots of promises made about, The stem cell technology would cure Alzheimer's, etc. Can you update me? And what don't we know about DNA?
0: All right. Thank you so much,
1: Eddie. Well, Eddie, I'm very pleased to say I've actually spoken to a couple of times Sir Ian Wilmot, who was one of the scientists who cloned Dolly the sheep. The way they did that was they took the cell from the skin of an udder from a female sheep and... That's why they called Dolly Dolly after Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton said thought it was quite funny. She said, no, publicity is bad publicity, (laughs) allegedly. (laughs) I Um, love this. and, And Ian Wilmot told me that that was the case. So I do believe it was true. But they got that skin cell, got the DNA out of it. Then they went to another sheep, got the egg cell from that sheep, took the DNA out of that and put back in the DNA, the complete DNA copy from the skin cell. And the egg chemicals booted up the DNA and made the egg start to grow as though it were a fertilized egg with a full suite of DNA, which it was because it had the the full copy of the the DNA that had come from the skin cell. And that led to the creation of Dolly the sheep, who was a clone genetically identical to the donor sheep whose udder cell had been used in the process. So Dolly's genetic mum, I suppose, was was, uh, an udder cell. Now, the reason that people said, look, this will open the door to our understanding of the cure for many diseases is because this is a step towards understanding a lot more about how embryos work, how stem cells work and how genes work and interact in those sorts of environments. And it's certainly true that since that amazing step forward was achieved, the field of stem cell biology has come a really long way. And we're now in a position where you can manipulate cells in such a way that you can start with an egg cell or a very early embryonic cell, as the egg starts to divide and produce populations of cells, you can start with those very primitive cells that are unspecialized. And we now understand an enormous amount about how to change the environment of those cells, add chemicals and triggers and instructions to make them turn into different types of tissue. And although it's still early days, scientists are now able to turn those cells into, say, populations of nerve cells, populations of skin cells populations of muscle cells so we're beginning to move towards a period where we can manipulate cells to produce a population of cells that can be used to repair damaged bits of the human body so the idea is in the future that if you've got a disease caused by a lack of a particular cell type because many diseases do stem from a loss of cells of a certain type you could produce new ones from your own cells by manipulating them in the ways I've been describing and then use that knowledge and that uh, pool of cells to repair the damaged organ in yourself. A long way off at the moment, but we're certainly making huge strides towards getting there, especially in the last decade or so.
0: And I think what you're explaining, I mean, um, it, it is quite a complex subject for the average brain to get to understand, but we are making progress is, is the important thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And um, that's what science is all about. It's uh, gently, steadily working towards an ultimate goal, but knowing it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time.
0: Yes, and a very quick question before we run out of time. I think it is a bit of a yes-no question for you, doctor. The question is, with all due respect for the millions who perished with COVID-19, animals in the wild get culled from time to time by diseases. While some die, some develop immunity and survive. From a scientific viewpoint, did COVID cull humans to maintain some form of population balance?
1: Well, nature does not know what we do and don't want to do or what is and isn't right. Nature is a set of biological rules. And if you tip the balance, you will increase the chances of things happening. Human population is tipping the balance at the moment because there are eight billion of us and we're putting a lot of pressure on the planet. So you make events like the emergence of diseases like COVID more likely to happen. And then you have to live with the consequences.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. And thank you to all of you for joining us and engaging on 702 Afternoons.